0: It's the Wonky Show.
1: UCU are balloting for industrial action. Does that signal a bleak midwinter for the sector? Plus, HEPI has a new report out on the humanities. There's new insight on LGBT plus applicants. And the free speech bill completes committee stage in the Commons. It's all coming up.
2: You know, my fear is that students will just think, well, we've, we've, we've had enough of this. You know, if even when the pandemic restrictions have lifted, we can't have normal teaching and learning uh, and assessment going on. I think their patients might be stretched just a little too far. So for me it's it's really worrying from that point of view.
1: Welcome back to The Wonky Show, your weekly aims of this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm your host, Jim Dickinson, and I'm here to help us cut through this week's policy malarkey. As usual, a couple of fantastic guests. Uh, in Cambridge, Graham Virgo is the Senior Pro Vice-Chancellor for Education at the University of Cambridge. Graham, your highlight of the week, please. Well, my highlight for this week is, in Cambridge, getting ready
3: for uh, our new students uh, coming back Um we, we don't have terms starting for another week, but we're really excited and everything is coming
1: together to welcome them back. Excellent. It's the buzz, isn't it? It's the buzz around the place. That's the... And in Oxfordshire, Mary Curnock-Cook is a serial non-exec director and chair of the UPP Student Futures Commission. Mary, your highlight of the week, please.
2: Well, Jim, apart from being in the studio with Graham Berger, I don't know if you remember, Graham, about four or five years ago, you helped me write um, an essay assignment on the legalities of essay cheat sites. And I then commissioned one of the cheat sites to write it for me. (laughs) But, um if uh, Jim, if the end of last week counts, um it was being back on a university campus again for the first time in what seems like forever. It was um Queen Mary in London, hosted by Colin Bailey, the principal there, and just seeing what they 've put in place to ensure you know that every all students can participate um whether they 're able to attend in person or not. It was just a complete eye opener they 've got masses of new kits they 've um trained over eight hundred educators over the summer they 've got teaching assistants with technical training to help lecturers in the lecture theatre. Um, and they're really, what, what I thought was they're ready to teach students as one group that fully includes people, even if they're having to join online. It's absolutely wonderful. They've spent millions on it and that doesn't even include all the new ventilation and everything. It was such a boost. and wow, it was that, fantastic.
1: There you go. That sounds like a place to visit. <laughs> Excellent <laughs> stuff. Good. So yes, we start this week, uh, sadly with industrial action the university and college union has confirmed that staff at 152 universities across the sector will receive a ballot on whether to support strike action in october mary tell us more
2: well oh dear uh, here we go again so the ucu is going to ballot uh, 152 providers um from the middle of october for a couple of weeks um, and it covers two major gripes that the union has one over changes to uss pensions um and there they're going to ballot seven universities the second is over pay and conditions with another 83 being balloted and then there's 62 who are being balloted on both issues so um without going into a lot of detail about the actual claims i think the sector's going to be watching to see what appetite there is for strike action and and the strike action could look quite similar to the previous round of strikes which i think was about Was it 14 days of walkouts spread over a month, something like that? You know, really, really potentially disruptive. Um, So just leaving aside the relative merits of the claim, I think some in the sector clearly feel that a round of strikes that affect students right now could be absolutely disastrous. You know, students are already feeling a bit hard done by after the pandemic. And further disruption could just be the final straw, causing a rush of complaints and fee fund, refund claims and so on. It's just so not what the sector wants when it's when it's trying to repair, if you like, the psychological contract with students as they return to campus after those months and months of isolation. Um, So uh, just in terms of reaction, the NUS says it's standing in solidarity with the UCO, the UCU. Others, frankly, think a strike right now would be a terrible outcome. I thought Nick Hillman hit the nail on the head. He said, many people will be bewildered by the idea that the way to make the sector better is to pause teaching and research by taking industrial action that will cost both students and staff dearly. And then I also looked at the University's UK statement, which I thought was a little more ominous. Um, They pointed out the constraints of the pensions regulation system, but also said Universities are regrettably well prepared to mitigate the impact of any industrial action on students learning and to minimize disruption for those staff choosing not to take part. So uh, fasten your seatbelts, as they say.
1: Graham I mean you know in many ways there's lots of aspects of the higher education <laughs> sector in the UK that kind of became cryogenically frozen uh, you know last March and one of them was this on- ongoing dispute involving what you see would call four fights so in some ways it shouldn't be a surprise should it that um, kind of you know hostilities are presumed? Correct I mean deep sigh that we, we are
3: still here um, I mean I've got to be Careful what I say because um, uh, the ballot is going on in my own institution, and of course, the process needs to work its way through with, with the ballot, and but also consultation continuing about um USS as as well. Um I mean I've got a few comments on it, and I think it is worth saying, particularly as regards the pensions dispute. There is obviously disagreement, but there is an awful lot of consensus as well with employees and employers, UUK and U- UCU, um, in, in that I think everybody accepts that this is not sustainable. This, uh, USS pension is not sustainable. We have got to change it. Um, there is a consensus about governance. Uh, At my own institution, we have been working really closely with UCU in in looking at conditional indexation, for example, which is rather technical, but that may be a way forward um, uh, in in longer term in, in resolving these problems. Shorter term, I think everybody has got to be careful in the narration and the dialogue. Pensions are complex. And I'm always concerned that this appears to be employers versus employees. Whereas the reality, of course, is in the context of of pensions, we have a pension trustee and we have a pension regulator and we have tight timeframes um, for negotiation and and discussion. So it is a horribly complicated picture. But I do want to finally just pick up what Mary was saying about um, students, impact on students. Um, we are back to where we were at the start of last year when there was industrial action. We, we will put in place what we need to if the industrial action takes, takes place. But of course, I am really concerned about the impact on students. If we look at third year undergraduates just going into their third year, um, they were the ones who in their first year were impacted by industrial action. And then at the end of their first year, they had first lockdown lockdown. Their second year was disrupted with COVID. What we want is for their third year, um, for many of them, their final year, to be the best possible year it can be. I am concerned, actually, about the, the reaction of students and, and where it may be directed. It will certainly be directed at university leadership. But increasingly, I am seeing it being directed at staff as well. And, and that's concerning because this is a complex picture. And um, and of course, this um, the ballot is not just about pensions; it is about other aspects of employment and conditions.
1: Mary, obviously, in in, in the olden days, by which I mean, <laughs> you know, a few years ago, kind of pre. Um, I guess, you know, Joe Grady being elected. There was a there was a kind of pattern to this kind of stuff, wasn't there? You know, you would get action short of a strike, maybe you'd get a couple of strike days, and then you'd get actual strikes, maybe around Easter. And the biggest thing that would happen is that some students' exams would be a bit later or they'd have their stuff marked later. But when you have substantial industrial action during the academic year, it actually becomes really difficult for universities to make up for the kind of lost learning despite the kind of warm words from UK.
2: Yeah. I, I and that's what I feel is just so not what anyone wants um, right now. Uh, you know, as Graham was saying, students have had a pretty rum deal, you know, albeit that they've been incredibly stoic and resilient. And, you know, there has been a pandemic on after all, but somehow not being able to go back, as Graham said, to a reasonably normal year now and having more disruption you know my fear is that students will just think well we've 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 had enough of this you know if even when the pandemic restrictions have lifted we can't have normal teaching and learning uh, and assessment going on i think their patience might be stretched just a little too far so for me it's it's really worrying from that point of view you know as i said i'm not kind of making any judgments about the merits of the claims or not but i think there must be a real onus on both uh, the unions and the employers to try to resolve this because the fallout on students, I think, could be disastrous for the sector.
1: Good. Right. Let's see who's been blogging for us this week.
2: This is
0: Sue McKenna from Rhodes University in Makanda, South Africa. In my blog post on Wanker this week, I've looked at some of the ways in which universities are addressing concerns about student cheating and assessments now that so many are having to write exams online. Proctoring software that monitors students' behaviour during online exams is not a new phenomenon, but it has grown exponentially during the pandemic. I don't know about you, but I've noticed that alongside the ubiquitous invitations from predatory journals, my email box is now full of adverts from companies promising to keep tabs on our students while they struggle to navigate this new normal. It seems that for some university staff, the pandemic has confirmed the extent to which students set out to manipulate the system. But imagine if this was not how we have interpreted their actions. The pandemic could have been the pause needed to reconsider the extent to which we inculcate a love of learning and responsibility to people and the planet. In my piece, I argue that this is the perfect time to ask ourselves what the heck we're doing in higher education and to start to put the common good ahead of all else.
1: Now, meanwhile this week, a new report from HEPI says we should do more to embed professionally valuable skills into the curriculum. Graham, will that fly with academics at Cambridge? I think it might. Um,
3: (laughs) And this is a really interesting report from HEPI. The humanities in modern Britain challenges and opportunities um, that uh, Gabriel Roberts, uh, who is actually an English graduate, from Cambridge and has also been at Oxford uh, he has written and he's now a secondary school teacher um and it's a nuanced analysis uh, it's not saying um humanities are in crisis uh, it is certainly saying there are challenges um challenges with student enrollment we see that at Cambridge there are challenges about graduate employability um, but but that is more complex than just saying oh, these humanities subjects are ones that are not worth studying because you will not get a good job at the end. It is much more complicated than that. And there are also concerns about funding as well. Um, What is really interesting is that uh, Gabriel Roberts, the author, uh, has made recommendations about reforms to a level to to embed humanities there. But really interesting from a university perspective is... um, Elaborating on the skills that might be required for um, future work, you know, job applications, etc., that are not um, being developed through existing humanities courses, particularly picking up numeracy and digital skills as well. Now, we can talk about numeracy. Digital is interesting. Digital humanities is developing quickly. And, and, and the report does, does refer to this. And that's certainly happening at Cambridge. I think that's actually something where, um, humanities can actually lead, um, uh, uh for various other subjects as to what the potential for digital is and actually developing digital skills for students.
1: Uh, uh, Mary, there's obviously a couple of sets of actually re- fairly modest, I thought, recommendations in here, and, and as well as kind of doing things to uh, potentially the curriculum. There's also this set of questions around, well, I mean, frankly, around A levels reform. <laughs> um, and and um, you, you know, do you think the proposals in there go far enough? I mean, effectively, what he's saying is, well, you know, um, you know, pre, pre, pre at, at, at level three, people should be um at least studying one humanities subject if they're on an academic track but we're back to kind of these wider questions about what you're supposed to do at that at that point aren't we
2: yeah and if i had a um a small criticism of the report which um which like graham i thought i thought was really interesting i wasn't sure how useful the distinction um of the humanities from other similar kind of non vocational subjects uh that might be in the kind of arts or social science brackets is and and i also felt that the arguments that he made were humanities is a good thing. Therefore, we should make changes which which kind of keep keep the flow of progression through education. And so, so that, for me, fell a little short. But turning specifically to the proposal around sixth form curriculum, um, you know, he's kind of saying it should be changed just to save the humanities from further decline. I don't, I'm not sure that's going to um, really fly. Um, you know, the broad proposal to add breadth to the sixth form curriculum is one that would Command support in all sorts of areas, albeit for different reasons. But he, you know, he also points out that reforming A levels would also require reform of GCSEs, and that uh, points to a complete reform of the whole 14 to 19 education phase, which you know, it's just it's just not realistic at at present. Um, for me, the really important point, which which Graham also highlighted, is about employability and this recommendation about the need for a wide range of additional skills to be available for humanity graduates. I think um, absolutely support that. By the way, I don't think it needs to be specific just to humanities, I'd say it's for, you know, for all courses everywhere. <laughs> um, but you know, the sector's under so much pressure, isn't it, um, to prove that uh, higher education does support um, better career trajectories. You know, not least because the government wants people to pay back more of their student loans. Um, but the, the key here is that actually I think students want this as well. Um, and, uh, you know, particularly, in fact, the, the report doesn't really go into what I think is probably quite a a divide um, in humanities students, which are far less popular for students from lower income backgrounds because there is this lack of a sort of visible link to employment opportunities. So you have lower income students flocking to courses like business and law or other subjects where they think, They'll be better prepared for jobs. So, you know, if you want to save the humanities, you've got to make them relevant, not just um, for the joy of studying humanities subjects, but also that people come out with exemplified skills that they can um, they can use to market themselves in the in the graduate job market.
1: It's fascinating, Graham, isn't it? Because you know, I mean, one of the stats that um, surprised me was. Uh, the raw numbers of humanities students at UK universities fallen by 40,000 over the last decade. I was quite surprised by that. And one of the things I was thinking about that was, is that about students not kind of pursuing their dreams and instead feeling pressure to do something more instrumental? Or is it that, you know, this, is this about a change in views and attitudes and so on? And in either case, you know, what do we do about that?
3: Look, I think it's 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 a number of reasons. And I'm sure the reasons you've... Had- Identified are relevant to that. Look, this is happening because of changes at school as well. I mean, the fact that languages um, are much less common at, at school has had a significant impact um, working its way through. It is also clear as well that, that there is a sense of, if I am going to university, um, I, I want to make sure I'm doing a subject which will produce uh, or, or give me opportunities at the end. Um, but actually, I think, um, a criticism I'd have about the report is, is an assumption that for humanities to be able to respond to that, they need to be adding skills development to, to what is being provided already at university through numeracy, for example. Okay. But I actually think, um, humanities could do rather more to trumpet the incredible transferable skills that um, humanities students develop at university, which are of direct relevance to all sorts of careers. Uh, I mean, the fact that humanities um, really um, facilitate critical thinking and textual analysis, interpretation, making connections and and engaging, frankly, with humanity, the human condition, these are incredibly important. and. in fact, there are a lot of people who've gone into all sorts of, of, of different jobs who have really benefited from their humanities degrees. So, so I, I, I would really like those teaching humanities, um, and, and those in, involved in universities to really start identifying and articulating much more clearly what is implicit. Within studying humanities subjects and the skills development, the transferable skills that will come from that,
1: Mary, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Because in some ways, I mean, I, 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 you know, for, for years people have been saying, "Well, look, you know, option one is you can um, kind of surface the skills that are already developed in a humanities or you know, you know, kind of, kind of you know, a, a, a non-stem degree." or you can kind of change the curriculum and change assessment to kind of, you know, be more clear about, sk- you know, to properly embed skills, or you can, you know, create some credit-bearing modules that aren't about the degree you're studying in order that you get skills, or you can just do some extracurricular stuff and then you'll develop some skills. I mean, wh- how are we still going round and round the merry-go-round trying to work out which of the four things to do?
2: It does baffle me, actually. And... You know, I thought it was it was interesting the report. I think I think the only career that um, the author pointed to that humanities supported was politics, and I'm not sure that that's really that's not going to save the uh, humanities. I, I've got news for him: yeah.
1: if you follow your dreams, do a humanities degree, one day You're you gonna, can be hosting the one. Yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I think this is an existential issue for the higher education sector, and through the Student Futures Commission, this is what I'm hearing all over the place students want to to study what they want to study but they want to know that they're going to be able to exemplify skills to support a job at the end of it so whichever route you choose whether it's embedded or added or assessed or mandatory or credit bearing or whatever it's got to be you've got to try and square yeah it's got to be there in the in the (laughs) the curriculum
1: now every week on the show we delve deep into the sector's past to discover stories of how things were and how things came to be with nottingham trent's academic registrar mike Ratcliffe, here's the hidden history
4: of he the English um, didn't use state power to set up universities. It's one of the curious things that very few occasions have the English actually used state power to set up a university. They've always bubbled up through local endeavor or through uh, benevolence. But there is an occasion or two key occasions when the English have used uh, state authority to set up universities, but they're both in Ireland. So. Although there was an abortive attempt to set up a university in Dublin uh, in the Middle Ages, the key uh, occasion comes when Elizabeth accedes uh, to a set of uh, rules that, that you know, it would be a good idea to have a, a Protestant university uh, in Dublin. Uh, and the reason for that is set out in, in her charter to that Uh, the idea is that knowledge and civility might be increased by the instruction of our people there whereof many have usually heretofore used to travel into france italy and spain to get learning in such foreign universities and this is the reason why they want to have their own university because they have been infected with popery and other ill qualities and so become evil subjects so trinity college dublin is set up with the idea of stopping the irish becoming evil subjects now I'm not sure how uh, that goes necessarily but it becomes a protestant bastion, uh, bastion and therefore it, they, they continue on that way uh, you know, shunned by the Catholics. The Irish bishops refuse to let their, uh, their students go there um, and so there's a, a, a gap in terms of education available to people in Ireland. Uh, and this all comes to a head in 1845 where two um, uh, different but very contentious uh, government acts uh, take place. The first is that Robert Hill decides to extend the amount of money he's going to uh, award to Maynooth College. Uh, so Maynooth College is a Catholic seminary. Uh, it's now developed into a multifunction university. But the notion of giving state money to train Catholic priests is an anathema uh, seriously splits the, the government, causes huge rows, the pamphleteers go crazy, there are long debates in Parliament about it, but it, it really comes to the heart of, should the should the government uh, be supporting Catholics, and, and there's a lot of rather nasty um, uh, business, and Peel describes that uh, the, the clamour against the remaining bill was the most senseless and atrocious display of calumny, hatred, bigotry and bad feeling which ever disgraced any country. Obviously, he didn't have to deal with Brexit, um, but there we go. So there's a sense of of the the disgrace, you know, the real problem about setting up money to to educate Catholics. The other thing he tries in 1845 is to set up uh, a range of government-run colleges. So these, uh, which he, he has the idea that they'll be set up um, I- around the country. There's a bit of a, a clamour as to which towns get the One, but eventually they're set up in Cork, Galway and Belfast. Um, uh, these are godless colleges um, in the model of uh, University College uh, London. Uh, there's no religious instruction allowed in them. Uh, they're very clear that they've, they've got to be done. There's a weird moment that all of the architects chosen all copy Oxford buildings in order to build them. Uh, so, uh, Queen's in particular gets a copy of um, Magdalen College Tower, so they, they build them in a very Oxford kind of a way. Um, but there's still a problem that they're, because they're now godless colleges, they're not teaching religion, the Irish Catholics still refuse to send their students to these these institutions. Um, so, you, you end up with this problem that um, there's now disagreement as to whether or not an I, Irish Catholic student could go to uh, a university and be taught by a Protestant, uh, and vice versa. So, there's this, you know, you couldn't possibly talk Peel again comes to this point that, you know, how, how can this be sensible? Um, how could we say that, you know, it would be uh, sensible for um, uh, us to object to an anatomy being taught by Roman Catholics to Protestants or vice versa? Uh, what, a, what a strange situation that is. The Irish bishops um, are sufficiently uh, concerned by this that they decide to set up at their own university. So, um, what they do is, Sensibly invite uh, John Henry Newman to come across, uh, he comes across to, to start the Catholic University in Ireland as a, as a, a small uh, outfit to do that uh, and, and the key reason this is important is he, he gives some lectures to explain why it would be a good idea to have a, a classical education uh, and they form the basis of, of the idea of the university which is still one of the classic uh, foundations so this system continues, um, there's a, a federal university that looks after the three colleges, it mutates into a, a royal university which allows uh, the religious heritage institutions uh, in 1880 to join it, so that allows the Catholic University in Maynooth uh, and McGee College in uh, uh, Derry to join, um, and it moves on that way. And interestingly, the Irish still have that system. The National University of Ireland is is the, the, the inheritor of that colonial act in 1845 to try and bring um, higher education uh, across Ireland. Uh, Queen's obviously separates out um, at the beginning of the 20th century but it's a foundation that they still have that federal system because of Robert people
1: Now, UCAS and LGBT plus campaigning group Stonewall have released a report this week looking at the demographics and opinions of gay, lesbian, bisexual and trans applicants. Mary, what did we learn?
2: Oh, I think this is a really important report. I think it's the first such report to look in depth at the LGBT plus group and to try and quantify it and start to understand it. it. It covers over 7% of applicants to UCAS in, in the 2020 cycle. And for a start, that's over two and a half times the national average um, proportion in the, in the adult population. Um, it covers, it's about 40,000 applicants. Um, it also includes over 2000 students identifying as trans. And the report notes that that's a huge increase to uh, 86% increase since 2016. Um, I thought it was also really interesting that UCAS intends to track progress and outcomes for this group as they go through university um, so that you know, that we get a full picture of, of the kind of journey for uh, LGBT plus experience at university, as well as this kind of before arriving at university um, look. Uh, so I think that'll be really interesting. And some interesting points in the report. Um, LGBT Uh, BT plus uh, students are more likely to be from a disadvantaged background. They're more likely to be be disabled or to report a mental health condition. Um, Gay men apparently have higher than average attainment, uh, while transgender students have a slightly lower than average attainment. Um, The other bit I thought was really interesting was the research into the experience that they'd had, um, these students had had of being LGBT at school and that, you know, a large proportion had good or at least neutral experience and, and, you know, really felt kind of accepted by their peers. Um, But of course, uh, some, uh, I think it was around 12%, didn't have a good experience. And that was mostly due to feeling that their identities were not adequately reflected in the curriculum. And sadly, trans students reported the most negativity, mostly uh, due to bullying um these students expected to be able to be more open about their sexual orientation and gender identity at uni than they have been at school which is which is positive um and of course rather unsurprisingly they're, they're very interested in the kind of explicit services for lgbt plus students available um as so, you know, soon that's a factor when they're choosing their courses um I thought it was interesting that they're more likely to choose to study in urban areas as well. Um, The report makes a really important point that this is not a homogenous group um, and that there will be wide variations in in their needs, their values and their motivations. Um, There are some recommendations. They include improvements to the UCAS application journey, particularly making it clear that the questions on the form about um, uh, gender identity and sexual orientation do not form any part of a university 's assessment of the applicant <laughs> uh, really i mean it's a, it's a call, it 's just it 's a wake Re- up call isn 't it you know realizing that people think that that might make a difference but um, so that 's really important um, and also um, providing and signposting student support service services that are focused on this group inclusive curriculum anti bullying training, and so on um, Jim, I could nitpick a bit about the way some of the data were presented in the report, which I thought made it a bit difficult to interpret. But I just thought this is really important baseline information for the sector to build on. So, um, yeah, three cheers for it.
1: Graham, I mean, you know, I thought the recommendations were fine. I thought the stuff, you know, in particular, obviously, about the applicant journey were were, were interesting. Where, Where it starts to talk about kind of getting beyond, you know, promoting LGBT plus societies and, you know, bu- bullying and harassment procedures and starts to get into, you know, the curriculum and the learning environment, it just strikes me that, I mean, you know, I guess for obvious reasons, the report is a bit thinner and actually some of the some of those issues are much more challenging in, in terms of kind of making progress on, you know, for instance, a, a kind of LGBT plus uh, inclusive curriculum.
3: Exactly. Look, I I really welcome this report. I I think there's some really important recommendations, but really interesting analysis. And actually seeing this data um, or or this group followed through. The the question I would want to ask now is: They, these students, these applicants, seem really optimistic about their. Um, university career in front of them, let's hope that that follows all the way through. And and clearly, um, the curriculum, their learning and teaching experience is going to be incredibly important to them. Um, Having an inclusive curriculum regardless of subject, really matters. Um, and we know this with the decolonization movement and trying to, to make sure that our curricula are more inclusive for um, ethnicity and for disability, but also uh, LGBT plus as well is really important. So, um, yeah, th- there are a lot of lessons to be learnt from this. Uh, and I think... Um, Certainly from my own experience, discussions about inclusive curriculum tend not, frankly, to focus on LGBT+. And in the light of this report, we need to make
1: sure that we do that much more. Now, the Institute for Fiscal Studies published a little calculator earlier this week. DK has the details.
5: The politics of student finance in England has always been pretty brutal. This week, the Institute for Fiscal Studies demonstrated that the maths is pretty nasty as well. For a Prime Minister that likes to keep people happy, it's something of a bind. He needs to do something to reduce spending to appease the Treasury. He's well aware at the risk of soaking students and their parents. And the powerful universities lobby, plus DFE's own modelling, not the Fantasy League Olga version, uh, puts a fee cut pretty much beyond the pale. Speculation has been around some combination of a soft numbers cap, Setting level 2 entry requirements, for example, alongside a change to repayment terms. Neither of these are optimal politically, but the IFS has poured fuel on the fire by confirming that changes to terms would also be highly regressive. Whatever your political persuasion, the idea that the least well-off pay more is instinctually unfair. So is a tax on aspiration. Even without any changes, somebody with both undergraduate or postgraduate loans will pay an eye-watering 64% marginal tax rate. Wheezes like extending the payment term or lowering the repayment threshold collect more money from low earners, while the graduates who benefit most from their studies end up paying less, as the loan has less time to accrue interest. The IFS's finance calculator is well worth having a play with. You can shift any number of variables to attempt to square this collection of circles. It feels to us like persisting with the idea that this is a loan system rather than a graduate tax is at the root of the problems. And that's another vestige of the brutality of student funding politics, as this language refers to the 2010 debates about student funding after the Brown Review.
1: Good. And finally, Wednesday marked the last day of hearings for the committee stage of the higher education freedom of speech bill. Uh, what's been happening, Graham?
3: Well, there have been various discussions in the committee stage and various uh, People, uh, including some academics, uh, have um, made representations to the committee. Um, Interestingly, um, there have been uh, various opposition amendments, uh, none of which have passed. Uh, Frankly, uh, my understanding of how these committees work, that is not too surprising. Things will now be going to the House of Commons and particularly to the House of Lords. And that's where I think um, there will be some particularly uh, interesting debates and maybe some potentially um, important amendments. Let, let's see whether they stick. There has been one particular amendment which has been put into the bill, which uh, is, I don't want this to become too parochial, but is particularly relevant to, to uh, my university, University of Cambridge. Uh, and there is a particular controversy um Arising from this uh, amendment relating to our college system. Now, Jim, I'm actually going to uh, make reference to something you've written. I, you, you've written um, a, a piece entitled "It's One Rule for Most SUs and No Rules for Oxbridge." Now, actually, when you when you look at the substance of what you wrote, I think you are absolutely right. But your headline. Isn't quite right because
1: clickbait headline. What? <laughs> <laughs> because
3: actually, there are some rules for Oxford, and actually, there was a really significant amendment made by the government to the bill. Because initially, um, the bill applied to universities such as Cambridge and Oxford, but not to the constituent colleges. And that's actually for some bizarre legislative shenanigans that happened with the Higher Education Research Act in 2017 and, and definitions of institution, which have been adopted in, in the bill, uh, which actually excluded the colleges. So the colleges will be caught as a result of this amendment. But certainly Michelle Donnellan suggested that... um junior and middle um, common rooms or combination rooms in colleges, basically the student union organisations for undergraduates and postgraduates, will not be covered. Now, the students union across the university will be covered. I will say, Jim, that I thought your analysis of the legislation uh, and the the policy implications were spot on. I, I, I don't see why there should be an exemption for college uh, student unions but actually there's a bigger issue here um, about the application of the bill and the legislation to student unions generally and what the impact of that is going to be.
1: (laughs) I mean it was bizarre I mean I've got a feeling that ministers and officials um, kind of understand that there's plenty of supervision of JCRs and MCRs um, not least, kind of, you know, g- you know, generally caused by the Education Act 1994, and also, you know, uh, you know, not in their own buildings quite often, and so on. But but then an assumption that all other student unions that are caught by the bill, you know, there's no supervision; they kind of roam around completely free, and of course, nothing could be further from the truth. I don't know a single student union that owns its own building, and obviously you know, the really, really tiny ones that are caught by the long tail of the act, you know, the, the, the kind of Basingstoke College of Tech, where the, it's two 17-year-olds running a rag week. I mean, the idea that they can issue a go-to-practice is for the birds. And there was a really funny moment, uh, uh, which we'll hear a clip of right now, where Michelle Donnellan was kind of challenged on whether or not the really tiny ones could do anything.
3: If the student union has nothing more than a petty cash box and no staff and no sabbatical officers, which there are some student unions yes, that have that... Um, how does she suggest that they're able to draft a professional um, uh, code of conduct without, it doesn't say cash, but without the institution ensuring that they have the resources, even if it's a secondment of staff, to be able to do that?
0: the honourable member for that very good point. I fully anticipate that the new director, whilst not wanting to predetermine their work, would be looking at templates of such codes of practice to assist.
2: For me, the big test is uh, when when there's... New legislation goes through. What what is going to to change? And you know that's what I'm having trouble getting my head around. Is it actually going to make any difference to anyone? Uh, will people really understand what it's supposed to achieve? You know, is it about freedom of speech or is it about stopping people saying one thing or another? You know, I'm um, personally I'm quite um, baffled about all of this, and I wonder whether uh, whether this is going to really make things clearer for for those in universities who are grappling with, you know, with difficult issues on this one.
1: And and and, and Graham, look, look. I mean, you know, to the extent to which this is a bill that is kind of, you know, uh, evidenced by a lot of press coverage. A lot of that press coverage centres on, um, you know, w- w- the university where you work. <laughs> Um, and, uh, you know, the departure, the announced departure of your Vice Chancellor has been framed as um, well, there was a man that was trying to clamp down on freedom of speech, and uh, this is a victory for free speech campaigners, and so on and so on. I mean, the truth is a lot more nuanced and complicated, right?
3: Well, the, the truth on that last point is completely different. Uh, I'm Stephen Toop, the Vice Chancellor, is totally committed to freedom of speech and academic freedom. Uh, He has announced uh, his um, departure from the university at the end of the next academic year. And he is totally committed to the university and continuing to be committed um, to to freedom of speech. And he has the full support of um, the university and senior leadership, um, staff and students behind him. Um, We have been in the media, of course. Uh, and uh you should never believe everything you read in the media there is a a lot more um complication there but i really want to reiterate and i I've, I've reiterated this to, to ministers and others i and the university completely committed to freedom of speech look um in my optimistic moments um this uh bill it will inevitably become legislation uh will not Uh, have a direct impact on universities and student unions. We will continue with what we are doing with our commitments to to ensuring freedom of speech. There are concerns, of course, and one of my concerns is just the regulatory, uh, the bureaucracy, the complexity that's going to arise from this. And I think that was quite clear from from some of Nicola Dandridge's uh, remarks to the committee about how the OFS and the OIA and the legal system and the enforcer with the OFS and our internal processes, including um, employment law and all the process relating to that, how all this is going to work out is going to be very difficult to navigate and really difficult for students' unions, actually.
1: Yeah, and, you know, surely at some point this kind of, you know, bizarre, there will be two complaints ombuds people roaming around the higher education sector has got to be resolved because, as I've said before on the site, you know, you, you, quite often in these cases you've got perhaps a group of students who are making a kind of EDI case, um, perhaps, you know, a member of staff that's making a free speech case, and the last thing you want is two different bodies kind of trying to resolve that from two different angles. But But, Mary, the other thing I was going to ask was, I mean, in many ways – I look at this, Bill, and it just feels like an analogue solution to a digital problem, right? By which I mean a hell of a lot of these cases are actually about stuff that's happening on social media, the kind of decentralisation of accountability you know, if you didn't like some of the things that some people said in, in 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 ye olden days, it was all kind of you know controlled by kind of press barons, and you could regulate that in an appropriate way. But I mean, this is really about the internet, isn't it? And and you know, we've got an online safety bill separately going through the Commons, and and no one has really mentioned that bill in the context of this set of issues, which I just find bizarre. Yeah, I
2: mean, it does it does feel like uh, you know the stable door is wide open, and guess who's already bolted? Um, I was just going to add, Jim. Um. I don't think we've had an announcement yet of who the free speech um, czar is going to be on the OFS board. Um, and I imagine that's a very tricky appointment to make, but I think if they get that appointment right, um, you know, there's a chance that we'll we'll get a more um, compelling and a clear narrative from, from the regulators about how they want this all to play out. Because, you know, as you've said, and Graham's said, you know the potential for kind of bureaucratic minefields around all of this is just um you know itself could be a, a curb on free speech and like i can't be bothered to have anyone speaking because it's too much it's too much admin um so yeah I, d- I don't hold out much hope but i think it'll be really interesting to see who that appointment is so that's about it for this
1: week remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we've discussed today you'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically just search for the wonky show via spotify apple or google podcasts or wherever else you listen and to keep you and your organization ahead of everything going on in ukhe do head to the website to find out more about our subscriptions so thanks very much to graham mary mike everyone at team wonky that helps make the show happen and until next week stay wonky